Hi, it's the 24th of May, 2019. This is the Room Now podcast. I'm Dr. Jack Cush, executive editor of RoomNow.com, here to talk to you about why selfie pics may not be a bad idea, why ILD is up and coming, how to assess it, how to treat it, and then a few things about joint replacement. We'll start out with a study about ANCA-associated vasculitis. In this particular study, they looked at some of the predictors of relapse, and they looked at 86 patients with and without hematuria, these are ANCA-associated vasculitis patients, who had achieved remission as far as proteinuria and other renal manifestations. But they looked at patients who had hematuria and those who didn't, uh, and ultimately they looked at the predictive value of hematuria. And in the patients who had achieved remission with a successful therapy, they found that those who had hematuria still were likely to have a higher rate of relapse of their ANCA-associated vasculitis. So I don't know about you, but how do you assess patients with ANCA-associated vasculitis? Of course, you know, there are many manifestations you can look at, you know, whether it's ENT, upper respiratory, lower respiratory, other manifestations. In particular, they looked at renal outcomes in this particular study. And there, I generally tend to uh, base my opinions on things like hypertension, uh, serum creatinine, creatinine clearance, protein, and sometimes hematuria. But I've never thought of hematuria as being a very strong prognostic feature. And that's sort of what this study says, that hematuria should be looked at and can be used in assessing patients over time. You know, fibromyalgia patients have a lot of pain. They end up seeing a lot of doctors, um, and some of those doctors are surgeons. Hence, a lot of my patients with fibromyalgia often have needless surgery, because if you go to a surgeon repeatedly, they're going to offer you surgery. And if it's for things like, you know, breast reduction, uh, uh, surgery for back and mid-back pain, or uh, hysterectomies for pelvic pain, etc. I worry about my patients with fibromyalgia. I tell them, do not have surgery unless A, it's life-threatening, or B, you have a second opinion that says that you will benefit from this. There was an interesting study that looked recently at patients who have fibromyalgia undergo knee replacements, and not surprisingly, uh, they prove that fibromyalgia patients who have knee replacement surgery are 30 to 50% more likely to have unsuccessful outcomes, including things like surgical complications, the need for revision, mechanical worsening, or post-operative infections. I think this is important because, again, you should tell your patients, unless it's life-threatening or game-changing, don't jump in. Uh, and they should be warned that, you know, with your diagnosis, you're more likely to have um, untoward consequences of uh, joint replacement surgery. Uh, an interesting study looked at lupus patients and joint replacement surgery. This looked at the, the National U.S. Inpatient uh, Sample Study that looked at almost 30,000 patients who had um, knee replacements in lupus patients and compared that to over 8 million non-lupus patients who had uh, also uh, knee replacements. And ultimately, they showed when they corrected for age and made other adjustments in their uh, analyses, they showed that lupus patients had no greater um, rate of surgical outcome disasters, meaning they had no higher rate of implant infection, uh, revisions, or even mortality from surgery. Lupus patients did have uh, a higher need for transfusions, and they did have longer hospital stays and overall greater hospital costs and lastly, we were more likely to be discharged to an inpatient facility for rehab, I would assume. 
Um, they did not look at things like lupus outcomes. So during surgery, do lupus patients have more lupus outcomes? That wasn't part of the study, but they did look at surgical outcomes. And I guess the good news is that you can tell your lupus patients who may need to have uh, joint replacement surgery that they can successfully go through this, assuming that their lupus is under good control at the time they have surgery. Uh, I posted a, a, a tweet last week that I thought was important and it made the weekend Twitter run and I think it's important for you to, to see this. There's a, a study from a pediatric dermatology res, uh, journal and in this particular study they compared 40 patients, a small sample, who they had, uh, who they had given instructions to the parents about how to take pictures um, and they gave some instructions on how to take pictures using their smartphones and some no instructions and then compared that to what happened when the patient parents with pictures showed up and the dermatologist made the diagnosis. It turns out in this particular study there was an 89% concordance between the diagnosis that would have been made using the smartphone only picture and than the in-person diagnosis made by the dermatologist. Turns out it didn't matter whether the patient had specific instructions on how to take a great picture and whatnot. Uh, and I think this is important. We often tell our patients if you're flaring and not doing good uh, or if you're getting rashes, take a picture of things and bring it to the next visit uh, or email it to us and maybe we can manage things uh, more efficiently with that additional bit of information. So your patient's cell phones um, could be uh, an advantage for you in managing patients. A new study looked at um, what happens in Bichette's in a large multi-center Egyptian study of over 1,500 patients, I think 23 Europe, uh, uh, centers in Egypt, and they did a sort of analysis to find out was a gender important in how the disease manifests itself. I guess that was the supposition of those doing the study uh, beforehand. So in a retrospective analysis, they showed, in fact, males have, were more likely to have GI involvement CNS involvement and DVTs. Women were more likely to have joint disease and more active disease than men. Um, I can't say that this means a whole lot to me. I see Bichette's, I think American Bichette's is different than Egyptian and Middle Eastern Bichette's. I think we get a lot of aches and pains and uh, oral rather than vaginal ulcers. I don't see much DVT, CNS, um, or GI tract involvement. Um, in fact, I think many patients with Bichette's are really fibromyalgia with a cold sore. I meant that for comedic uh, uh, value, but um, really it's not much more than that. And it's not clear that they're going to benefit from steroids or maybe um, new therapies in the future like the use of a primalas. But if you treat a lot of Bichette's patients, I wonder, does this fit your profile of what you see? Uh, another center profiled their patients, the Toronto Lupus Clinic, is a famous lupus clinic um, done by um, uh, Mary Urowitz and Daphne Gladman and others uh, in Toronto, and they have a large number of patients. They followed a, a cohort of almost 300 patients for a long period of time and came up with these numbers about remission and low-dose activity. They defined remission as a sleet I2K of zero and a low disease activity of a sleet I2K of less than two. You know, the sleet eye has things like um, joint um, cytopenia, serositis, CNS involvement, vasculitis, skin disease, renal disease, serologic disease. You, you know, uh, four or more is what it takes to get into a lupus trial. Um, you know, 10 or more is really active lupus. Um, 
but their definition of remission was zero for more than 10 years and remission, uh, excuse me, LDA, uh, low disease activity state for more than 10 years. The numbers that they had in their cohort was actually quite low. 10% achieved clinical remission that was prolonged more than 10 years and 18% were able to achieve an LDAS for more than 10 years. Altogether, that's 28% of their lupus population. Um, well, they were able to have 10 years of very, very low activity. I'm thinking that I might do that well in my clinic. Uh, I think I do very well managing lupus and don't need a lot of the newer therapies to manage lupus. But I think this is encouraging data about how aggressive we are that we can keep patients in remission or in LDAS for more than 10 years uh, with effective therapy. We reported also this week on the uh, influence of insomnia and depression in people with osteoarthritis. In this particular study of I think over 3,000 patients, uh, they had half the patients had moderate to severe pain from their osteoarthritis and they looked at the frequency of insomnia and depression. They found that over 50% of patients had uh, some element of insomnia and 45% had some element of past um, uh, or current depression. Uh, and they showed that the number one driver of healthcare utilization in this cohort was pain. Pain of any cause, mainly osteoarthritis cause. They found the second greatest driver was that of depression, uh, also driving healthcare costs. And then third would have been insomnia. So the combination of pain from OA plus depression had an additive effect. The same thing can be said for the combination of OA pain plus insomnia had an additive effect on healthcare utilization. So you assume that, that pain and insomnia can, pain and insomnia can drive uh, pain, excuse me, insomnia and depression can drive pain scores and that can drive more healthcare utilization. Meaning that if you're managing OA patients and they're not well controlled, these are two things that you should be looking in on and, uh, and, uh, and managing and, and paying attention to. Uh, a nice report and review comes from Italy on the issue of connective tissue disease patients and their pulmonary assessments. And they asked the question, should patients with CTDs uh, undergo PFT testing or imaging? Uh, and they, there's a lot of good data showing the value of mainly PFTs and somewhat of DLCOs and sometimes high-res uh, chest CT scans. They do make the point that RA patients who have rheumatoid-associated interstitial lung disease, especially of the UIP type, where the prognosis is poor, that um, early and then recurrent PFTs with DLCO and high-res CTs periodically makes sense in managing and predicting outcomes. With other diseases, certainly you do see ILD in not just in RA, but in scleroderma patients, SLE, inflammatory myositis, where there is uh, probably a prognostic value to PFTs uh, over uh, imaging with high-res CT. Uh, on Twitter, Philip Robinson uh, asked the question, does it make sense to expose the patients to the radiation um, to fish for um, prognostic data? And I think um, other than what I said, uh, UIP and RA, ILD, um, probably not to do recurrent uh, uh, high-res CTs. However, PFTs and DLCOs, yes. And they actually made a case for the FVC being more predictive than the DLCO um, in some cases and the LCOs in other cases. 
But DLCO is not as reproducible as FVC, um, and repeatedly, really both measures, both measures should be looked at. Um, Nintedinib, this is a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that's been approved for use in idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis, is now under study. ILD and pulmonary fibrosis is, is a big area of investigation with new trials and new products. Um, Nintedinib is also called OLEV, 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 um, which is approved, as I said, for that indication. It was studied in patients with systemic sclerosis who had um, the onset of symptoms within the last seven years, not including rainouts, and had some uh, CT evidence of ILD. 576 patients, half had diffuse cutaneous sclerosis, um, and 48% were on background mycophenolate. The primary outcome was FVC change. And what they showed was that if you were on the tyrosine kinase inhibitor, Nintendinib, you had almost half as less, half as little um, FVC progression over a one-year period. At the same time, there were no other changes in scleroderma outcomes, especially the modified Rodman skin score, suggesting this may have value in those who have progressive lung disease, but it may not do very much for the underlying systemic sclerosis. And then lastly, um, there was a um, trial of, uh, of a review of the trials of drug therapy with interstitial lung disease that I put up as a reference. It's a recent report from the journal Rheumatology uh, written by Dinesh Khanna, where he reviews a lot of the therapies that are out there. And it's really kind of disappointing. You know, other than cyclophosphamide, um, you know, a lot of things don't work. Steroids don't work. Perfenidone doesn't seem to work. But again, these aren't great trials. And Bosentan didn't work. Um, rituximab did work a little bit. Um, but we need better studies and more trials to better know what our options are in patients with interstitial lung disease. That's it for this week at Room Now. Go to the website to view these citations and more. Go to roomnow.live where you can see on demand the lecture of your choosing on RA, vasculitis, lupus, psoriatic arthritis, ankylosing spondylitis, orthopedics, or even drug safety. We'll talk next week.